You're now listening to a podcast of Revolution Church, located at 1702 6th Street in Portsmouth, Ohio. Revolution meets on Sunday evenings at 6.30 p.m. For more information, visit www.revolutionchurchohio.com or check out our Facebook page. Daniel had been in exile for about 70 years. He was taken in probably his early 20s, late teens from Judah into the Babylonian Empire to serve there. Uh, Daniel, again, he's 90. He served under multiple kings, uh, and he's given faithful service to whatever realm that he has been a part of. Um, But then, as we're going to see in this account, as faithful as Daniel had been, as devoted to his God as he had been, uh, as good of a servant to the empire as he had been, his faithfulness to the living God gets him thrown into a den of lions. We know the story. We know that God rescued Daniel, that he sent an angel to shut the mouths of the lions. Um, But just throwing this out there, I I bet most of us have, have been taught, or at least think, that this story is about how God will rescue us from our personal lion's den if we just have enough faith. And that's just false. That's just nonsense. All right? Nowhere in the Bible are we promised any kind of avoidance from pain. Ever. Right? We all know that God let many of His prophets be murdered. Right? We're going to look at a passage in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says, you're blessed whenever people hate you and mock you and persecute you because they did the same to the prophets. Right? So this passage is not about how God will save you from the lions if you just believe enough. Because one of, the, one of the major prophets, Isaiah, was sawed in half. That's how he died, because he preached to the people. So that's not the point of this sermon at all. It's not the point of this text. But in this passage, in Daniel 6... Uh, I think Daniel teaches us a lot about the life of faith. I think Daniel teaches us a lot about what our lives as believers should consist of. And if I could boil that down to three things, it would be these. Public devotion, or sorry, personal devotion, public witness, and a raw trust in God. I think that's the life of faith in a nutshell. Personal devotion to God, public witness to God, and trusting God. All right, so here's an outline of where we're going to go this evening, so you guys, if you're this kind of a person that needs to know where we're going. Uh, first, we're going to look at the personal devotion and public witness that are both necessary for followers of Jesus Christ to have. And then second, we're going to look at the fact that that devotion and witness will land us in the lion's den of some kind. That's an absolute non-negotiable. It will get us in trouble at some point. Thirdly, communion with God strengthens and prepares us for the trial. Prepares us for the lion's den. Fourth, God promises vindication for his people and damnation for his opponents. And fifthly, that we can trust God in the midst of the trial because we know he is faithful to us and that those who put their faith in Jesus Christ will never be put to shame, ever. So with that being said, I'm going to pray. Then we'll do some uh, some of the background of chapter 6 and then we'll get into the text. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Holy Spirit, please open our eyes and ears and hearts to the text that you would apply it to our lives, that you would help us to see our sin where we're failing, that we could see the grace of God in this text, that while Daniel is not Jesus Christ, that we could look at Daniel and see an example set for believers and that he was a foreshadowing of the Christ to come. God, do a work of sovereign grace in us this evening that you would grant repentance to your people in the areas that we have neglected you and grant us perseverance and boldness as we go through this life as a witness to the supremacy of Christ in all things. 
God, be gracious to us and kind to us and let us learn something from your word this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, cool. So a little bit of background in this. I understand we just went from chapters 3, 4, we skipped chapter 5, and now we're in chapter 6 in Daniel. So chapter 5, and I kind of wanted to preach on this, but we didn't because I wanted to get into First John. Um, the handwriting on the wall. You guys know that story? Right? Yeah, a few of you, whatever. Uh, read your Bibles. Um, Right, but the handwriting on the wall, right, in Daniel chapter 5. So in chapter 5 that we're skipping, uh, King Nebuchadnezzar's descendant, maybe his grandson named Belshazzar, uh, he took gold and silver cups, right, he was having like this big pagan bash, big pagan party. Um, he took these golden and silver cups that had been looted from God's temple whenever they took over uh, and, and brought the Jewish people into exile. Uh, they used them at that party, which is like an act of supreme blasphemy because those cups were only to be used in temple service. So God then wrote on the wall uh, divinely, numbered, weighed, divided, and Persian. Right? That's what he wrote on the wall. And then Daniel interprets it and declares that God was sending the Persians to overthrow Babylon. And it happened. That very evening, uh, the Babylonians were conquered by the Persians. Belshazzar was killed uh, for his blasphemy. And now the Persian king has taken control. All right, so that's what we need to know. The Persian king has taken control. Uh, his name is King Darius. All right. I thought it was Darius for a long time because of VeggieTales. Um, they were wrong. All right. Use better resources for your kids. I still love you, Mom. Um, but King Darius uh, has taken control on everything. And there is some debate on, on who Darius was. Uh, because he could, that could have been his name. Or Darius is also, uh, can be a title uh, back then for Persians. And so that means that this person could actually be King Cyrus. Right? And remember that name because he's going to come up at the end of this sermon. Uh, but this person could be King Cyrus. He's the guy who sent all the Jews home from their exile to rebuild the temple. So it could be that king indeed. So anyway, King Darius has taken over. He's ruling over the Babylonian Empire. It's now the Persian Empire. And Daniel finds himself under a new king and a new reign. Let's check this out. Daniel chapter 6. We're going to read the whole chapter. Verse 1. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom. A satrap is a regional governor. And over them... Three high officials, of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give account, so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps, because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful, and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, We shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel, unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. So let me just throw this out there. Daniel has served as like a prime minister of sorts for the empire since he's been there. He's been given very high prominent positions. He has a spotless record. Right? He's throwing this out there. Consider American politics for a second. Daniel has been in the political system for 70 years, and they got nothing on this guy as madness, right? Completely spotless record, not a single thing on him. And they know that he is such a morally upright man, an exemplary man, that the only thing that they're going to be able to get on him is going to have to be in connection with the law of his God. Because if they know anything about Daniel, they know Daniel will choose his God above everything else. They know that if the law of the king or the law of the government or anything else comes up against the law of his God, he will choose the law of his God even if it means his death. And that's how they have to trap him. Verse 6, Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. 
All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors, are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days, except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. Right? So they lied to the king. Because they, like, they said that we're all in agreement. All the governors are in agreement. We know Daniel wouldn't have signed off on a law like this saying you can't pray to anyone but the king. Right? Daniel clearly didn't agree to that. And uh, just so you know, the Persians didn't really view their kings as gods. So this isn't King Darius claiming to be a god. This was more like, a, again, like we saw with the golden image in chapter 3. This is like a political move to unify the newly conquered Babylonians under King Darius. Right? That he was going to be like their mediator between them and the gods. Um, and again, we saw here death by lions, mauling to death, being eaten alive for anyone who prays to anyone but King Darius. So can you see the position that they put Daniel in? God demands that his people be in constant communion with him, and now Daniel is being told he cannot. Verse 10. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day, and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. Then they came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any God or man within 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? And the king answered and said, The thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and Persians which cannot be revoked. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction that you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. Right? Just something I want you to know. Daniel wasn't being a punk. Right? Daniel wasn't saying, well, I'll show them. I'm going to open up my windows and they can see me pray because I'll show this king who's boss. Right? That was Daniel's normal custom. He just kept doing what he had always done. He was known for praying three times a day. Right? And by the way, him opening his windows to face toward Jerusalem... Uh, this is a beautiful thought. Daniel knew that this place wasn't his home that he was in. Daniel knew that Babylon was not his home, that he was in exile, and he longed so badly to go back to Jerusalem. He faced towards it when he prayed. He's facing Jerusalem, longing for God to fulfill his promise to send his people back. Right? But then the, the men who don't like him go and catch him in communion with his God in prayer. And they go and snitch him out to the king. Verse 14, Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel. And he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den. And the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him and sleep fled from him. Then at break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. And as he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? 
Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths, and they have not harmed me, because I was found blameless before him. And also before you, O king, I have done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted in his God. And the king commanded, and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions. They, their children, and their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. So I want to make a quick note here. That's not okay. That's not okay that the king did that. It's totally, like, it makes sense that the one suit, because it was actually common law back then, if you accuse someone uh, and they come out innocent, you get punished for however they would have been punished. And that's actually justice. I think that's a fair thing that we could have in our country, maybe. Um, but this is a pagan land with pagan laws. It was absolutely ungodly that the wives and children were thrown to the lions, too. But this is the world that Daniel lives in. This is the world that Daniel lives in. It's not his home. Yahweh would not stand for such a godless act. This is a place that needs redeemed. But again, Daniel is rescued by God, by faith. And the enemies of God are slaughtered. And there's some foreshadowing there. 25. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, Peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Remember that last verse. Daniel prospered during the reign of Cyrus the Persian. We're going to come to that later. But the first thing, right? The first thing that really grabbed my attention in this account was Daniel's personal devotion to God. It's, it's such a staggering thing that we, we can't miss this. Verse 10 tells us that Daniel's regular habit was to pray three times a day. Right? And that three times a day thing probably comes from Psalm 55, verse 17, that David says, in, uh, in the morning and in the afternoon and in the evening, I cry out to God and he hears me. Right? So Daniel's familiar with the scriptures. That was actually a pretty normal practice from what I understand for pious Jews in the exiles to pray three times a day. But this was normal for Daniel. And just consider this. Daniel was radically devoted to intentional time in communion with the living God. Absolutely devoted to it. So much so that they knew that that's how they were going to trap him. Right? And by the way, I know a lot of us like to say, and we're going to get into this, like I'm too busy. Like, I'm too busy to spend like any amount of time in prayer or any amount of time in scripture or those kinds of things. Daniel served as essentially a prime minister. Are you prime minister busy? You feel me on that? Like, and yet three times a day, he's like, hey, peace, guys. i got to go home and pray for a little while. And again, he's like the prime minister of an empire. This is madness. This is radical devotion from Daniel. He wants to spend time in communion with God. And that thought made me think of what we call in theology the ordinary means of grace. Right? So don't freak out. Right? The means of grace. Here's a definition that I would give for it. Those things which God has ordained as vehicles that he uses... To strengthen our faith, give grace, commune with us, encourage us, and enable us to persevere in the faith. I think that's, that's just my white trash definition of means of grace. I didn't want to give you guys a theological dictionary's definition. 
So the things that God has ordained as vehicles to strengthen us, give grace, commune with us, encourage us, and enable us to persevere. Now hear me out. These things don't save. <laughs> These things that we're going to talk about do not save. Faith alone in Christ alone saves. Repent and believe the gospel. It's the only way that we're going to be saved. Christ's work is what saves. But these things that we're going to talk about are graces to the believer that God has given to us because he's good to us in order to sustain us in this life so that he makes good on his promise. That those whom he foreknew, he called, or predestined, he called, justified, and glorified. This is part of that perseverance. But prayer... Right, prayer is one of, if not the, greatest means of grace that God has given to us. Just consider this. Even if someone stole your Bible from you or you weren't able to access the scriptures anymore, as devastating as that would be, you could still pray. You could still be in communion with God. And consider, the majority of people have been illiterate for most of the world's existence, and yet people were known for being men and women of prayer before the scriptures were accessible to them in their native tongue. But again, it's probably the greatest means of grace that God has given us. Think about this. We are privileged to go and speak to the Almighty God. The creator and sustainer of the universe. We actually have, we are commanded to approach the throne of God boldly since we are in Jesus Christ. So the author of Hebrews tells us. And yet, this is often the most ignored means of grace that we have. Probably the most privileged one that we have, but the most ignored. Let me explain to you how prayer is a means of grace. Prayer reminds us of so much stuff. You ever consider what you're doing whenever you pray? You're admitting your utter dependence upon the sovereign God of the universe whenever you pray. That you're in control of nothing. He controls everything. You are utterly dependent. Whenever we petition God, Lord, help me with this, which might be the godliest prayer that we have. Lord, help me. We're acknowledging I can do nothing apart from you, which is what Jesus says. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Not only are we acknowledging who we are, but we're acknowledging who God is. That if we're going to him with all of our petitions and all of our problems and needing help from him, that he is the creator. He is the sustainer. And not only that, the fact that we're crying out to him uh, tells that we believe that he hears us when we call out to him. That he's in control of all things. That he is a good father who provides for his children. If he wasn't, we wouldn't waste our time crying out to him. And yet, for believers, it's a natural impulse for us to bring our petitions to God. Right? And then whenever we pray prayers of thanksgiving, right? Because sometimes we only pray prayers of petition, and that is really ungodly. For us to only go to God and ask him for things, and never just spend time in prayer just reflecting on who he is and his goodness and his greatness. But whenever we give thanks to God in a prayer of thanksgiving, we are, again, reminded of his goodness and his patience and his kindness and his grace and his blessing towards us. As we thank God for all of the material things and spiritual blessings that we have in Christ, we can see who he is more. We get a more accurate picture of who he is. And as we weep whenever we thank God for Christ crucified in our place, that we might be reconciled to God, we see the great love of God for us in our prayers. And again, as we pray for forgiveness, we see that we are sinners in need of this gracious God. There's a Puritan, and I I didn't bother to look up uh, who it was that said this, because my phone is trash. Um, But there's a Puritan that said this. Prayer is essentially us preaching to ourselves as we cry out to God. Think about how much of a means of grace that that is. 
not that we're talking to ourselves or only preaching to ourselves, but as we cry out to God and as He hears us, we are preaching to ourselves because we are reminded of who God is and who we are as we pray. And that stirs our affections towards Him. This makes our hearts warm towards Him, stokes the fire of our heart that we might obey Him and see Him in a true light. But consider this. Consider the privileged position that we are in as Christians to have more than one means of grace. And I'm not going to give us an exhaustive list, but i got five. God's given us more than one means of grace. Scripture. Scripture. Oh, please don't neglect reading the Bible. Charles Spurgeon has a great quote. He says, Some of you, uh, there is so much dust on your Bible that you can write damnation on its cover. Right? And I think that's a fantastic thing to keep in mind. Right? Scripture is a great means of grace to us. God speaks to us. Did you guys see the Babylon Bee article about the man who is like begging God to speak to him while the Bible lays three feet from his hands? <laughs> it said, the guy's like quoted, I don't know why God won't talk to me, said the man, while the prophetic word, more fully confirmed, laid next to him on his coffee table. <laughs> right? so, like, I thought that was the greatest thing that I had heard. But God speaks to us in the scriptures. He tells us with His own words of His character and His works and His will for our lives. And by the way, the will of God for your life is your sanctification according to Paul's letter to the Thessalonians. Right? So you always want to know, what's God want me to do? He wants you to be holy and obey Him. That's His will for your life. But He speaks to us. Right? So that's one. Two, in prayer, we talk back to Him in response to who He has revealed Himself to be in His Word. We meet together, what we're doing right now is called corporate worship, where we meet to pray together and sing praises to God and hear the Word of God preached to us. And that stirs up our affections towards God as we encourage one another. We take the Lord's Supper. That's a great means of grace to us, where Christ comes and supernaturally communes with us as we reflect on His sacrifice and see a living drama of Christ crucified in the bread and in the cup as we partake of that. And He comes and He invites us to His table. When our, with a, a fifth one, our fellowship with believers. Like we're told to be in communion with our brothers and sisters. Where we go to one another and confess our sins and pray with each other and encourage each other to push each other on. And again, our affections are stirred towards Christ. That we might be zealous in our obedience and know Him better. All of these things, all of these means of grace, strengthen our faith and encourage us and help us to persevere faithfully in this life. Listen, apart from the use of the means of grace, you won't persevere. I'm not saying that God is not sovereign, and I'm not saying that your salvation depends upon how good that you are, but God has appointed means that we are to use that He will not work apart from. Kind of like how no one can be saved unless someone preaches the gospel. God could save them apart from that, but He has said, I will not save them apart from that. He will not enable us to persevere apart from the use of the means of grace. Period. But let me ask you this, and this beat me across the face as I considered this this week. Could you go 30 days and neglect these things? Could you go 30 days without any of these things? For the sake of saving your life, could you go 30 days without these things? Because Daniel wouldn't go one day. He absolutely refused, and yet we often neglect them. Because we're wretches and we don't value them. There's a Puritan, just thinking about this, I know a lot of people don't like to read their Bibles. There's a Puritan who, and, and this is a bold statement, this might, make, this might offend some of you, but I think he's got the heart of it right. He says, God, take our children from us before you take, our, take your word from us. He said, what if God, if we neglected his word, took it from us? 
And he said, God, take my children before you take the word. But yet we don't value the scriptures that way. We don't value any of the means of grace that way because we don't, we don't take them seriously enough. But Daniel was radically devoted to his God. Daniel loved the Lord. It's, been, it's evidenced through chapter, chapters 1 through 6 is this biography of Daniel and his friends. He's radically devoted to God. He loves Him. I think Daniel realized this. I can't go one second apart from the grace of God. Because apart from the grace of God, I would die. How then could I go 30 days without fellowship with Him? How audacious of a thought that that is. Therefore, I will not neglect Him. I won't neglect God. Daniel's love for God naturally led him to seek God's face every single day in a heartfelt, personal devotion because he loved him. So I just want to ask you that. Do you love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your mind and all your soul and all your strength? If so, why do you neglect the means of grace? Why do any of us do that? But personal devotion is only part of the life of faith that Daniel teaches us that believers have. Though it's incredibly important, it's only part of it. The second part is this. Daniel had an incredibly public witness to his God. Lord, help us with this. All right, so hear me on this. If you're a note taker and you don't hear me say anything else apart from Christ crucified, um, our faith is intensely personal, but it is not private. Intensely personal, but it is not a private faith. It was common knowledge that Daniel was a devoted follower of Yahweh. That he loved the living God. And that's how they trapped him. It was public knowledge. Daniel did not shy away from proclaiming his allegiance to the living God in times of peace or when the heat was on. Throughout this account, we see Daniel give witness to God. And I think he does it in two ways. Right? He does it in his life and in the words that he proclaims. And here he has to be both. Life and word. So for life, we look at verse 5 in in Daniel 6. Then these men said, We shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. What does that tell us about Daniel? Daniel was a morally upright man. Now hear me on this. Daniel's not Jesus, right? Uh, Daniel's not sinless. He's still a wretch. He still deserves the wrath of God. Um, But he's a morally upright man. He's a godly man. He loved God's word and he obeyed it faithfully because of his devotion to God. Like Daniel took seriously uh, his personal devotion to God and therefore it bled over into his life. I think in the fact that they had no charge whatsoever to bring against Daniel tells us that just some, some hallmarks of Daniel's life. He would have been a kind man. They couldn't find anyone that didn't like him. I mean, except for themselves because they were greedy and probably wanting to steal from the king and they knew Daniel wouldn't have any of that. Right? I would imagine Daniel was kind. And he was a patient man. He was gracious and he was very wise. We know that. All of his steps were very measured in everything that he did. He would have been generous as he had the ability to be generous and loving towards everybody. He hated injustice. He, he tells King Nebuchadnezzar, please shake off your iniquities by doing justice and helping the oppressed. Right? He would have helped the poor as he, as he was able. He would have been honest in business. Again, that's probably why they wanted to kill him. He was known as a hard worker. 70 years of faithful service. He refused to worship false gods. And he didn't stain himself with ungodly entertainment and pagan hobbies. And trust me, I'm sure they were rampantly available to him as a prime minister of sorts to the Babylonian Empire. 
What I'm getting at is that Daniel's life made him stand out. And I know what some of you are thinking. Some of you are probably like, your eyes are rolling so far in the back of your head. David sounds like an 80-year-old preaching up here. It's true, though. Daniel's life made him stand out from the pagans around him. He did not fit in with the unbeliever. He didn't fit in. He thought, spoke, and acted differently than the unbelievers around him, so much so that they took notice and hated him for it. Again, he was exemplary in his daily life. They have nothing to bring against him. And it's the thought, how hypocritical would Daniel have been to proclaim the God who changes people and not live a changed life? It's supremely hypocritical because that can't be. It's a contradiction. It's not consistent. So Daniel was a public witness in his life. So hear me on this. If you care nothing, nothing about the holiness of God or the holiness in your own life, you're not a Christian. You're not. If you care nothing about sin, nothing about the killing of sin in your life, nothing about personal devotion to God, nothing about anything that His law commands, you're not born again. You're still in your sins. You're not in Christ. Because there's no way you can be in Christ and still be at peace with your sin. I'm not saying you won't sin, but I'm saying there is nothing more miserable than a sinning Christian. You won't be at peace. But the Word, right? So in His life, we, we saw that in His words. And hear me on this, it's kind of weird. Verse 20, as he, King Darius, came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? How did a pagan king know to call Daniel's God the living God? Because Daniel taught it to him. Daniel taught him that his God was the living God. Consider the boldness that it would have taken of Daniel, a Jew in exile that everyone pretty much already hates because like everyone's pretty much racist back then against the Jews, uh, kind of like today in a lot of cases. Um, how bold it would have been for him to be a foreigner and an exile that he, he knows no one likes to tell a pagan king that his God was the living God. What does that automatically say? Every other God is false or dead. If my God is the, isn't like, like proper, the only one, the living God. That's boldness out of Daniel to tell a king that. Daniel took seriously Israel's mission to bless the nations. Right? And part of that mission to bless the nations was to proclaim the one true God and that he would one day send a redeemer to save sinners. As part of the mission of Israel. And he failed miserably at it. That was, but Daniel took it seriously at least. Right? Though it was unpopular and placed Daniel in danger, Daniel didn't care. Daniel was a faithful herald of who God was. Daniel was a prophet. He was faithful to the message of who God is. He proclaimed the supremacy and sovereignty of God to kings, governors, and anyone else who would listen to him. And we have the exact same commission from Jesus Christ. The church has the same commission that Israel had. The church is the fulfillment of Israel, by the way. We are to do everything that God told them to do, but we have better promises, and we are enabled and empowered more to do so. How much more, then, should we be willing and and emboldened to go and do so if we have the Holy Spirit living in us? But I know this. I know most of us would rather do one or the other, right? I would rather be a public witness in word or in my life. 
right? I'd like to preach the gospel and use words when necessary. God help us. That is unbiblical. Um, right? Or I would rather just tell people the gospel with my words and not really have a life that backs it up. Right? I know most of us lean towards one or the other. Like I know Christians who are exemplary moral models, but will not tell the people closest to them that they're going to hell and offer the grace of the gospel to them. Absolutely won't do it. Exemplary moral models, though, but cowards and won't tell anyone the gospel. Likewise, I know people who will tell you the gospel at the drop of a hat, but don't seem to care about holiness like they should. And just for total transparency, that's where I tend to land. I'll tell you the gospel in two seconds, but I also want to do a lot of stupid stuff sometimes. All right? They don't want to live out the message that they proclaim. Daniel shows us that the life of faith must be both. Right? We don't get to pick either or. It's both and. I'm going to read this whole text with me. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. That's proclamation of the gospel. That's part of it at least baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So what do we see here in the Great Commission? If we're going to be disciples, we must make other disciples, which involves a proclamation of Christ's person and work, and we have to teach them to observe, which means we ourselves are observing in practice, in our daily lives, that which the Lord Jesus Christ has commanded. We have to be both light and heat. Right? The heat of our lives showing the truth and the light that we're going to shine on people's sinfulness and wickedness, but the grace of the gospel. We have to be both. Peter says that we are to proclaim the excellencies of God. Right? But we do that with a life that proves His power. And we must have both. I'll spend a minute on this. We have to have both personal devotion and a public witness. There must be both. A personal devotion with no public witness means you're a coward. Because you are sold out to these truths about God and you claim to love the Lord, but you won't tell anyone about Him. You are a coward and there is nothing else to call you. Myself included at times. I'm not standing up here pointing the finger. But also, a public witness to the gospel with no personal devotion means you're a hypocrite. Because you're willing to tell people about this God who changes people and you don't really care much for Him in your private life. God demands consistency. From us, and he empowers us by the Holy Spirit for both of them. But Daniel was very consistent, and his life of faith landed him in a den of lions. And hear me on this you better expect the same thing. Expect the same thing. The world hates God. Period. The mindset on the flesh is hostile to God. I know you guys hear me say that all the time. Read Romans 8, just commit it to memory, and I can stop saying it. Right, the mind on the flesh, the world is hostile to God. It will not please Him. Indeed, it cannot please Him. They hate Him. We're all by nature God-haters. And because of that, the world hates the people who align themselves with God, proclaim that God, and love Him. So just throwing this out there too. The world doesn't hate us because of us. The world hates us because the world hates God. Right, we get hated by association. We are guilty by association, so to speak. Now, it may be more passive in some places, like America. It's a little bit more passive here than in North Korea. It's a lot more passive here than there. But make no mistake, the world is opposed to Christ and His church. And Jesus Christ tells us to expect hatred. Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, verses 11 and 12. Blessed are you when 
Others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Verse 11 says when, not if. No one is exempt from this. When you're persecuted. When the world hates you because you're a faithful witness in your life and in your words. When you are hated, you are blessed. Why are you blessed? Because this is one of the ways that we can know we belong to Christ. Because they hated Him and they've always hated the prophets of God. So hear me on this. I know this, might, this is super unpopular. If you have never experienced an ounce of suffering for the sake of Jesus Christ, you really need to rethink your public witness to Christ. If you've never experienced an ounce of pain, an ounce of distress, you need to rethink your public witness. If you've never been called crazy, if you've never been mocked, and this isn't real persecution, but if you've never been called crazy and you've never been mocked, you've never been laughed at, you've never lost a friend, you've never made things weird with somebody, I would ask, are you proclaiming the wrath of God against sinners and Christ crucified to save them? Are you proclaiming that at all? Likewise, if you've never been called a prude or a Puritan or told to mellow out because you excuse yourselves from certain activities or certain situations that are ungodly, if you've never had anything like that happen to you or people just think that you know, you're a holy roller or whatever, um, I would ask you this, are you striving for holiness at all? Or do you live like the world? To be friends with the world is to be an enemy of God. That's what James tells us. Where are you at? Where do you line up on this? Or, just another one, do you have no unbelieving friends? Because if you don't, go make some. Oh yeah, and I put this in there because I didn't want to forget this. Um, not all hatred is persecution for righteousness sake. <laughs> God help us. The gospel is offensive enough, you don't need to be a jerk. Right? So Yeah, I've experienced persecution. I walked right up to that lady I've never talked to in my life, put my finger in her face and told her she was going to burn in hell forever. Yeah, she hates you, dog. Like, you're, you're a punk. You're a jerk. Right? If you make a big deal out of it whenever you want to excuse yourself from a certain situation and tell everyone else that they're a bunch of pagans and you don't want to hang out with them anymore, yeah, they're not going to like you anymore. But what do we see about Daniel? Verse 3 said he had an excellent spirit in him. Daniel was a winsome man. They, again, King Darius actually liked him. He had a winsome spirit. But God's people will be hated for God's sake. But what made Daniel, what made Daniel keep up the life of faith in the face of persecution, in the face of death? Because we need to know what Daniel knew. And we need to know how Daniel came to know it. Daniel had true faith. Daniel had legitimate faith. He trusted his God. This is a lot of repetition from what we learned in chapter 3 with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But Daniel had come to the same conclusions as his friends did in chapter 3. And that's this. Whatever my God ordains is right. And I trust Him. I think Daniel had come to the conclusion that God is worthy of my personal devotion and my public witness and my life if necessary. And that He is in control of this entire thing and I'm going to entrust myself to Him. And because Daniel knew that God was worth dying for, that God was sovereign, and that God loved him and was worthy, Daniel did what Peter tells us to do in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer 
according to God's will, entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So if you are persecuted for the sake of righteousness, entrust yourself to a faithful creator. Daniel trusted the faithful God, and that's what pushed him on. And I believe Daniel came to this conclusion because he had been in constant communion with his God. He used the means of grace that were available to him, and that's how he came to know that God was faithful, and God was trustworthy, and that God loved him. Prayer prepared Daniel for the day of trouble. The means of grace is what prepared Daniel for this. As Daniel reflected on who God is, used the means of grace, he came to see and trust more deeply that God was sovereign, that God was faithful, and that he was good, and that he loved Daniel. Daniel had come to realize what the Lord Jesus teaches us in Luke chapter 12. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. This is... By the way, Jesus' teaching on that is set in a context where he's talking about don't fear men who might kill you. Don't fear the persecution of men. Fear God. What's his reasoning? Because you're worth a lot more than a bird and no bird falls dead from the heavens apart from God's knowledge. God knows all the hairs on your head and he loves you deeply. Daniel knew that God sees and God cares for his people. Let me ask you this. How much more do we know that than Daniel? Daniel prophesied about things that he did not understand concerning the coming of Jesus Christ. The New Testament tells us that the prophets did not fully understand. But we have witnessed and beheld in our mind's eye the love of God towards us and the fact that Jesus Christ suffered and died on our behalf to save us from the wrath of God. We have witnessed such things. We know in Christ crucified the love of God for us, that Christ was the atonement for our sins. We can see how much God cares for us. We are in a privileged position to have seen this truth in Christ. More so than Daniel. Like Daniel wasn't a super saint. We know more than he did. How much more bold should we be than Daniel? Daniel believed that God loved him and was in control. Therefore, Daniel was free to live his life of faith openly, regardless of the repercussions. Jesus says, my God is sovereign and my God loves me. And when you know God's love and sovereignty, you no longer fear men and you no longer fear pain. You no longer fear death because you know that the faithful creator has you secure in his hands. But what's the outcome of the lions then? Daniel was rescued from, the enemy, or from his enemies and the enemies of God are utterly destroyed. And this points us to a spiritual truth that in the end, God will save and vindicate his people. Daniel did not open his mouth one time after they accused him until the king was talking to him and said, did God save you? And he's like, yep. Right, but apart from that, Daniel didn't try to defend himself at all. He says, God will vindicate me. Truth will out. God will do what is just. Even if he lets me die, God will vindicate me in the life to come. So we see the vindication of God for His people and the salvation of the souls of God's people. And we see this truth as well. God will devour the unbeliever under His wrath. Worse than any lion. Those who scorn the people of God will get what's coming to them. They will get justice indeed while the people of God receive mercy through faith in Christ. 
So hear me on this. The point of this passage is not that Daniel was rescued from physical death because Daniel still died. He didn't die that day, but Daniel still died. But the climax of this passage points to the truth that God is worthy of our life and our death and that He is sovereign and faithful to His people. Verse 23 tells us a great spiritual truth. It says, No kind of harm was found on Daniel because he trusted in his God. Daniel had faith. That's what faith is, is trust. And because of that trust in a sovereign God, he was willing to volunteer himself to death if necessary. This tells us something great, that we can suffer any kind of pain or persecution faithfully because we know the ultimate outcome. And that outcome is that no true or eternal harm will ever come upon the people of God because we have been saved by faith in Christ. There is no wrath for us. The one who trusts the Lord Jesus will never be put to shame. We will be saved. We will be vindicated in the life to come if not in this life. But again, the enemy of God, the unbeliever, will receive eternal damnation and be devoured by the wrath of God. That truth is a truth that enables us to persevere. That God is faithful to His people. And because we know He is faithful to us, we can be faithful to Him in return. Even whenever everything seems bleak and pain is coming. I know I've went long. This will be my last point. Because this is too good to not, to, to not talk about. The last verse of this passage is solid proof that God is faithful to His people. And every single promise that he makes to his people. And you won't see it at first if you don't know some stuff about about the Old Testament. Verse 28. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Seventy years Daniel was in captivity. You could say that Daniel lived his life in the lion's den. He had seen people thrown into furnaces for their faith in the living God. I'm sure he had seen many. We've only seen a few things recorded of the cruelty of kings towards the people of God. I'm sure there are many things unrecorded. Seventy years, he sees persecution. But then God raised up a king named Cyrus. If you don't know, Cyrus was the king who sent the Jews home from exile to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. So by the end of David or Daniel's life, he gets to see that God was being faithful to His promise to send a Messiah through the line of David, born in Bethlehem to redeem the people of God. God was working the entire time. Throughout the persecution in captivity, God was working out His plan to save sinners because He is faithful to His promise and to His people. And Daniel knew that. I'll close with this. God is worthy of our trust. He's worthy of our personal devotion, of our public witness, of our very lives. And He is faithful to His people. And may we, in response, His chosen people, show faithfulness in return. Let's pray. Father, You're good to us. And You're faithful. God, I pray that we would love you with a sincere devotion that goes deeper than just meeting together once a week, that goes deeper than just proclaiming to be a Christian, but that you would give us a zeal and a burning desire to commune with you on a daily basis. 
to be in fellowship with other believers, to be in sincere prayer before your face on a regular basis. God, that we wouldn't be cowards or hypocrites, but that we would go into the public square willingly to declare the excellencies and supremacy of Christ to the nations. To everyone around us, God, that we would be a herald of the gospel. God, don't let us be complacent. Don't let us be cowards. Embolden us with your Holy Spirit as we use the means of grace. And God, help us to remember that you're faithful to us always, even when we suffer. That you're always working something to be faithful to your promise. God, we thank you above all things for Christ crucified. He is the basis of our courage. He is the basis of our hope. And we know we'll never be put to shame in him. In Jesus' name, amen.